are your mercies in disguise. You ever thought about that? That song really could be the anthem for the sermon series we began this morning on the life of of Joseph, uh, where we saw how Joseph was a young man who trusted completely in, in God's providence, even when it seemed that maybe God had made a mistake in his life or had forgotten him. And this morning we, we focused, if you were here, on the word providence and the word sovereign, if you like, and learned that although from our perspective our lives are largely unscripted for us, we don't really know, uh, we make plans, but we don't know what's really going to happen, you know, in the next 24 hours uh, or in the next, uh, uh, the next week or so. Uh, and uh, although it's unscripted as far as we're concerned, to, to a large extent, it's not so for God. That's the comforting truth. Our lives are not unscripted to him because he sees all, all the events of our life ahead of time. And God in his providence, as I said this morning, is continually and consistently and constantly and confidently at work in our future, providing uh, all that we need in this life and for the life to come. And his loving care is behind everything that we experience, even if we can't see it or understand it in the moment. And we watched a song about that this morning, saying, not for a moment would God forsake us, not even for a moment. Well, Joseph's life, as we realized this morning, takes up over a quarter of the book of Genesis. That's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, more space than is even given to his great-grandfather, Abraham. And so Joseph's story is obviously one of, of, of great importance uh, and one for us to really understand. For instance, we, we, we noted this morning that Joseph is a, a beautiful type or a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he was beloved of his father, as was the Lord Jesus. He was betrayed by his brothers, as was our Savior. He was, he was uh, sold for pieces of silver, as Jesus was as well. And many, many other uh, things in Joseph's life parallel, really, and, and foreshadow the life of Jesus. And secondly, although Joseph's life was not perfect, none of our lives are perfect this side of heaven. His wasn't perfect either, but his life was a life of purity. The scriptures don't record in his life story uh, anything bad about, about Joseph. So his story illustrates how under the most difficult of circumstances, it's possible to be faithful, faithful to God and living a righteous life that's pleasing to God in the midst of difficult times. And then, I didn't mention this this morning, but Joseph is also the link between Genesis and Exodus. It was because of what happened in Joseph's life, being sold into slavery in Egypt, uh, himself first, of course, that the children of their literal father, Jacob, or Israel as he came to be known, eventually also found themselves there in Egypt and eventually in slavery. We can't properly understand the book of Exodus uh, apart from understanding the life of Joseph. Um, the Exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land was a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given uh, by God to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. Uh, not only centuries before the Israelites entered Egypt, but centuries before there were any Israelites. The Israelites originated from Abraham's grandson Jacob, Joseph's father whom God had renamed Israel, as I've said. And speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15, 
the Lord said, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed uh, as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As we'll see later in Genesis, uh, the Israelites, initially Joseph's immediate family of about 70 people, entered Egypt under the best possible circumstances, um, but they were, they were delivered from a great famine in their own land uh, and drought in their homeland into the well-watered Nile Delta region known as Goshen. And one of their own, Joseph, was actually the ruler of that country in those days. We'll come to that uh, weeks down the road. But the outcome was that they grew from that initial family group, small family group, to eventually become a great nation while they were in Egypt. Uh, in fact, if we read in, in Exodus, let me just read it to you. Exodus chapter 1, it tells us there in, in verse uh, 8, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And, and so we, we see the beginnings of that. And that's why the Israelites were, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly, became exceedingly numerous, as that scripture tells us. And, and the Pharaoh of the day, the new leader, the new Pharaoh came to fear the Israelites these, these foreigners um, who were uh, teeming with, uh, uh, into his own national borders. And then we read in verse 8, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 8. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And, and, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives better with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work uh, in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Um, they really took, took advantage of them. That's, that's, uh, and that's, uh, that's why, you know, there's this link between Genesis and the story of Joseph in Egypt and then the Israelites uh, coming into captivity in, in, in Egypt. For some reason, the more powerful uh, Israelites allowed themselves to be made slaves. Uh, it wasn't a matter of the stronger oppressing the weaker. It was a matter of the weaker uh, ruling over the stronger because the, the stronger allowed it. And then we, re, we, we, we read on there how they were oppressed. Uh, the Israelites continued to grow in number and in power. Uh, despite the oppression, Pharaoh's slavery became a, really a simmering genocide that was about to happen and in an attempt to reduce the military potential of the, the Israelites, he ordered the killing of male infants. And, uh, and of course, we have the story of Moses and the, the angel uh, passing over and, and the rest is history. That's the prophetic backdrop uh, to this story of Joseph, if you like. But let's read about this 17-year-old uh, uh, in chapter uh, 37 of Genesis. If you have your Bible there, you can follow with me. We read the first uh, the first 11 verses this morning, but I want to finish the chapter. Uh, you, we read how Joseph was, bef you know, was the favorite of his father, had that coat of many colors, and, and his brothers didn't like him, and he, all the rest of it. But anyway, we read on in verse 12. Now, the brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are, in gra are, are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. 
Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asking, uh, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man said. I, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from, uh, from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly or ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For after all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when... The Midianite merchants came by. His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And Reuben, uh, Reuben was the one who had tried to prevent this, returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph wasn't there. He tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it and see whether it's your own son's robe. He recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'm in mourning. Uh, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. While the Midianites sold Joseph Egypt, those officials. Look at what was happening here a little bit tonight. You can probably gather from this initial record that Joseph's family tree, really, is a case study in human imperfection, not dysfunction. Abraham, uh, I'm going to say some things that uh, may about because of the young people that are here tonight but Abraham the father of God's chosen people had a son Isaac as you know and Isaac had two sons Jacob and Esau Jacob eventually became Joseph's father and in Genesis 29 we read that Jacob Joseph's father had fallen in love with a woman named Rachel and her dad Laban said if he worked for him seven years he could marry her but when the wedding day rolled around his father-in-law tricked him and Jacob woke up in the morning next to Rachel's less attractive but older sister, Leah, whom he has to marry. But nevertheless, he's also allowed to marry Rachel uh, in exchange for promising to work for another seven years. You remember how all that, that went. 
there was all kinds of uh, trickery and, and all sorts of stuff going on back then as well as there is today. And then in Genesis 29 and 30, verse 30, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And that's important because it gives us a hint of the dysfunction and the favoritism that will uh, nearly ruin this family. So Jacob is now married, not just the two women, but the two sisters. Can you imagine that, man? Uh, married to two sisters. And it would seem that uh, the completion, uh, or the competition, I should say, and the jealousy between these two sisters must have been pretty intense. And it got worse. Leah was the one who started getting pregnant and bearing children, and Rachel didn't. And when she saw that she wasn't bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Uh, and she said to Jacob in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or I'll die. So out of desperation, she says, Take my maidservant, uh, Bilhah, and sleep with her so that she can bear children for me. And so the maidservant became pregnant. Twice. And now Leah is getting a bit uneasy because her lead in the childbearing is now four to two. And uh, uh, she takes her maidservant, Zilpah, and gives her to Jacob. And that woman has two sons to Jacob. And then Leah has two more sons and a daughter, giving Jacob at this point ten sons and one daughter. Now you can get a picture of, of what's going on here. And it's not, not, very, not very pleasant. Finally, after years of infertility, Genesis 30, verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, and he opened her womb, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and said, God has taken away my disgrace. And she named him Joseph, and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Uh, in the midst of all this, all this stuff that's going on, Jacob, Jacob is a rather weak and, and ineffective father. For instance, in Genesis 34, the family's traveling across the country, and Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, is, uh, is raped by the son of the mayor of Shechem. And when Jacob learns what happened, he does nothing. Passive. His sons, however, when they saw her father wasn't going to do, their father wasn't going to do anything about that, they took matters in their own hands. And they devised a plan, and they killed all the men in the city. And when Jacob learned what they'd done, again, he did nothing. He was passive. His chief concern was about preventing bad public relations with the rest of the people in the land, so he didn't want to disturb the peace. And later his oldest son, Reuben, has a sexual affair with one of his stepmoms, Bilhah. And again, Jacob does nothing. Does absolutely nothing. And to cap it all off, Rachel dies giving birth to her second child, Benjamin, Jacob's twelfth son, and 13th over, uh, child overall, and then Jacob's father, Isaac, dies. And it's not too difficult to guess how Jacob's passivity as a parent added to the turmoil in this family. He didn't take any parental leadership whatsoever. And so by the time Joseph is about 10 years old, here's, here's his family situation in a nutshell. His father is a polygamist, fathering 12 sons from four women, two of whom were sisters, who all lived in the same house. His only sister had been raped. His older brothers, uh, that's, uh, Joseph's old, older brothers, were guilty of murder and theft and gross immorality. And his mother Rachel and his grandfather Isaac have now both died. Can you imagine the sort of family that Joseph was 
brought up in as a young, young boy. In fact, historically and generationally, Joseph's family was, was known for deceit. Father Jacob deceived his own father Isaac to steal Esau's birthright. Do you remember that story? Though later Jacob deceived Laban to take advantage of him uh, because of the whole issue of marrying Rachel and having to marry Leah. And later Joseph's brothers would deceive their father by telling him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And on and on and on we could go about this family. This family was dishonest. This family was deceitful. And yet Joseph became known for his integrity. It's amazing. I like the story of a, a census taker knocked on the door of an old cabin high up and deep in the Kerry Mountains. The door was answered by a very unkempt, skinny-looking 12, 13-year-old girl. And the census taker said, can I speak to your father? And the girl said, well, he, he isn't here. He's, he's been in jail for a couple of years. I said, well, can I speak to your mother? And the girl responded, well, she isn't here either. She ran off with a potching smuggler. Answer taker persisted and said, is there an older sister that I can speak with? And the girl said, no, she married, she's married off to a gypsy and she lives somewhere with her seven kids. Finally, the census taker then said, well, maybe there's an older brother that I can speak to. Could I speak to your older brother? And once more, the girl answered, well, he isn't here either. He's at Oxford University. Surprised, the census taker said, Oxford? He's at Oxford University? What's he studying at Oxford? Oh, she said, he isn't studying anything. By any, any evaluation, Joseph's messed up family would qualify today, hands down, to get Joseph an appearance on the Jeremy Kyle show, if, the, if it was still on. Um, before the world heard of soap operas, Joseph's family was living one. 21st century word that perfectly describes his family and it's a word that you won't find anywhere in Genesis but it fits nonetheless. Joseph grew up in a very dysfunctional family environment but we can take comfort in that because it teaches us that our background is no impediment to our service for God. Joseph came from a family that certainly uh, was not a neat clean one man one woman nuclear family he was born into a family where jealousy and comparison and distrust were the rules of the game. It wasn't a happy family. And yet God chose Joseph and used him mightily. And out of this family, many years down the road, Joseph will rescue his brothers, the brothers who would betray him. But as the story opens, as we just read, there's no reason at all to, to see all this in advance. Well, the term dysfunctional is used quite often today with regard to families and it refers to the sense of disintegration that's produced in a family where there's a lot of hurt. From a Christian perspective, it's a, it's a family home that's not functioning as God intended. It could be as a result of divorce or separation or lack of communication or jealousy between children or self-consumed parents or addictive behaviors or child abuse or sexual abuse or spousal abuse, extramarital affairs, pornography, the list goes on. And one of the strange dynamics in family life is that when children grow up, they often repeat the same behaviors, even the same mistakes of their families. The inconvenient truth is that we, as we grow into adulthood, 
What we know about marriage and about parenting, for good or for bad, we learn in the home. Sobering thought. The end result, of course, is that dysfunctional families can create more dysfunctional families, often going on for generations. I believe that this is at least a part of the what the Bible is speaking of when it says in Numbers 14, Numbers 14 verse 18, that, that God visits, uh, when God visits his people, he says, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving the sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And listen, if you're in a dysfunctional home or a dysfunctional family, only your absolute faith in God will be able to break the chains of the patterns of wrong behaviors and choices that you've experienced in the lives of parents or other adults around you as you've been growing up. Living in a dysfunctional env environment can make it difficult to live for God, but it's not impossible. And Joseph is proof that it can be done. Looking at Joseph's family, we'd never have guessed that he would become a giant for God. So whatever the failures are or have been in, in, in maybe in your own family, we're not doomed to be destroyed by their destructive, destructive influences. And if we, can, if, we, if we can't look at our earthly parents as models for Christ-likeness, we must choose to break their negative influence by following the model of our Heavenly Father, who loves to free people from the chains of their past. Not only was Jacob a, a passive parent, but for 17 years, his children had watched as he played favorites with Joseph. It's not unusual. Let's be honest. It's not unusual for parents, even in little ways, to struggle with favoritism within the family. You might feel a special affinity for one child over another. Maybe they're more like us, or one girl and a brood of boys is what it's about. Or if a child has gone through a serious illness, uh, we'll favor them maybe more than the others. All of these things can tempt us to favoritism. But the problem is not the temptation, it's the surrender to it. And Jacob not only surrendered to that, but he actually celebrated it. 17-year-old Joseph was Jacob and Rachel's miracle child, the golden boy. And in Jacob's case, not only did he, did he love Joseph more than the older brothers... Jacob didn't try to hide his partiality and he demonstrated his favoritism openly in a very dramatic way. And when it came to getting the kids their coats, Jacob found some coats at a low-cost store for the older brothers, but he went to boil for men in the diamond to buy a Tommy Hilfiger special for Joseph. Described as a richly ornamented robe. The Hebrew word describes it as a, a robe extending to the ankles and to, to the wrists, perhaps with embroidered narrow strips of color around the edge. It was a robe that was worn usually by wealthy nobility. And while Joseph's brothers wore robes that were short and they were sleeveless, it was so that they would be able to climb up the hills and wade through swamps, carry sheep on their shoulders and so on. In essence, Joseph's robe declared that he was exempt from manual labor and from hardship. And even the light color of his robe indicated that he did not expect to get dirty or to have to soil it in any way from hard work. And just think about it. It would be like having 12 sons 
And on Christmas morning, you give 11 of them a coloring book and a, and a box of crayons from the pound shop, chair, other son, an iPad. Hartberg has written a book about Joseph, and he says that when Joseph's elder brothers walked into the tent, Jacob might ask them how the flocks were, were doing or if they had completed their chores. But when Joseph lifted the tent flap and stood before his aging father, Jacob's eyes would light up and his face would beam. Uh, Joseph was uh, the one that Jacob bragged about all the time. Joseph probably got to stay up late. He probably got to play longer, to work less, get away with more than any of the other older sons. And Jacob knew how Joseph was doing at school and never missed one of Joseph's football games and while he knew all about Joseph's friends he, he, he was a little fuzzy about the kind of details like that when it came to his other children. Hortberg pictures it. Before we condemn Jacob out of hand let's admit easy fathers Is, you know, you maybe leave the house early in the morning to go to work. You don't get home maybe until later in the evening for tea time. And after tea, the kids are, are busy, hopefully, with homework or other things. And you sit down with the paper in front of the TV and so it goes. Your kids are in their world and you're in your world. Lost touch with the things that are shaping their lives. It's easy to be like Jacob was, to be a passive parent. Don't be a passive parent. Be involved in the lives of your children, your grandchildren. Another thing, the robe worn by Joseph commonly designated the rightful heir to the family. According to Middle East custom, it was the eldest son, uh, if the, or if the eldest son lost the birthright, then it went to the oldest son of the second wife, Reuben. But Reuben had lost his birthright because he had, a, he had an affair with his father's concubine. And so the birthright would have fallen to Joseph as the second wife's oldest son. I know it gets a bit complicated, and it was complicated. By giving Joseph this coat, Israel or Jacob was saying to his other boys, let there be no doubt, this is my favorite son. I love him the most. He's going to be the main inheritor of my estate when I die. That was the message he was sending to the other boys. That kind of dysfunctional passivity and favoritism will always, always cause problems in the family. And it certainly did in Joseph's home. And to make matters even more complicated, Joseph was having dreams of ruling over his brothers and even having his mother and father come, uh, come to bow down before him. And Genesis tells us that his brothers hated Joseph. Hated him so much they couldn't speak a kind word to him or about him. And remember as well that Joseph had already brought, we read it in the first reading this morning, a bad report about his brothers back to his father. And so on the surface it might seem that Joseph was just a tattletale sort of fella. But from what Joseph says later on, he must have spoken to his brothers first about it before telling his father. It seems that they were yielding to the pressures of, of, of the culture around them, the pagan culture, the Canaanite religion around them. And every time the brothers saw the coat uh, on Joseph, they were reminded of the contrast between his life and their life. And his brothers came to hate him for, for being all the things that they weren't. The stage was being set for Israel's 400 years in slavery in Egypt. 
that God had prophesied to Abraham, except that the leading character, the star player, was not ready for his debut. Joseph had a dream about a promising future, but he also had a potential crisis on his hands. He was ahead of himself. He was, he was sure of himself. He was full of himself. Or to put it another way, when he, when he was a teenager uh, who was talkative, he was maybe insensitive, a little bit blunt or naive or immature, perhaps craving for his brother's attention and acceptance and affection, trying too hard maybe. He appeared where he wasn't invited sometimes probably. He said what nobody wanted to hear. He flaunted what no one else had and, uh, and so on. He was a pet to his father, a wee pet, a rat to his brothers. Up to this point, Joseph didn't know, didn't understand or realize that God did not give him the, the talents, the opportunity and the destiny for him alone but for the salvation of the Jews, the eventual salvation of the Jews. Egyptians, even, and the salvation of mankind, ultimately. There's no evidence that he prayed for understanding, There's, or tried to reassure his brothers, or made any attempt to uphold family unity, or reconciliation, or harmony. Uh, Joseph certainly goes on to maturity, as we'll see. And although he wasn't to blame for his father's passivity, or his favoritism, he, he contributed to it by elevating himself above the others, setting brother against brother that divided the whole family. And when his brothers asked the question in verse 8, will you actually rule over us? Joseph had no reply. Probably many things are part of their envy and their hatred of Joseph. But let me hasten to add that Joseph himself was not perfect. Assume that at 17 years old, he was a normal adolescent. Not very much that Joseph understood everything that was happening in his life. Joseph was at the very least maybe naive as he wore his new special coat into the fields to check on his brothers. Uh, this would be like wearing a tuxedo out to do some farm work. Uh, you'd hardly do that. But as he related his dreams of superiority to his brothers as well, it doesn't take much insight to understand that this could only further fan the flames of his brother's animosity towards him. And while we can't blame ourselves for the faults of others, we must be realistic when it comes to our own faults. And as I said this morning, accept responsibility for them and not blame others. A construction worker was uh, working and it came to lunchtime and he took out his lunchbox and he looked at what was inside and he said, oh, spam sandwiches again. I'm sick of spam sandwiches. If I see another spam sandwich, I'll die. And his co-worker said, well, why don't you ask your wife to pack something else for your lunch? Which he said, I'm not married. I pack my own lunch. And the moral of the story, I suppose, is that some of the spam in our lives, we put there ourselves, don't we? And we have to take responsibility for it. So Joseph's brothers, yes, acted out of jealousy and spite. And what they did was inexcusably reprehensible. But note that although the brothers were in charge, they were not in control. God was ultimately in control. Because their plans actually changed. If you read the text, and we did, they changed by the minute. Plan A, which failed, was to kill Joseph. Plan B, which didn't succeed, was to starve him to death, leave him in the cistern. So they resorted to plan C, trading him for some money, the least dangerous of the three. And, and you know, providentially, to use that word again, Reuben and Judah, the sons of Leah, the fiercest rival of Rachel, Joseph's mother, actually saved him. God is omnipotent. Although 
the name and mention of God are absent from this chapter. His hand of intervention is all over this, this scenario. God allowed bad things to happen to Joseph. And although he didn't cause them, God didn't cause them, or he didn't stop them or reverse them, he used and transformed them for his purposes and for his glory, as we'll see as the story continues. Joseph himself is only guilty of two things. Being his father's favorite son, the apple of his daddy's eye, and being a dreamer. If you didn't know that before, let me share, let me share the breaking news right now. Life will not always be the best of times. If somebody told you that when you became a Christian that all of your problems would be over, life would be great, you'd never get hurt again, you'd never cry again, you'd never suffer again, they lied to you. Psalm 34 and 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord, but the Lord delivers them from them all. The point I'm trying to make is that Christians, you know, as Christians, we have problems as well, don't we? Let's not ignore that. Let's be honest about that. Christians get sick. Christians get into debt. Christians get divorced. Christians get their hearts broken. Christians get themselves into places they shouldn't be. And sometimes you fall in, sometimes you jump in, sometimes you're pushed in, but regardless of how you got there or why you're there, a pit is a pit and life in a pit isn't very pleasant. And if you stay there, you're going to shrivel up and die. Because dreams will die in the pit. Ministries will die in a pit. Gifts, callings, marriages can all die in a pit. And I don't, don't know what that pit might be for you even tonight as you sit here. It might be the pit of death. It might be a pit of sickness or bondage or addiction of one kind or another. It might be a pit of despair or depression. It might be a pit of marriage and relationship problems that looks so dark and impossible that you, you feel like giving up. It might be a spiritual pit that you just don't feel God, uh, God is there. And you're feeling discouraged. Well, listen, Joseph. Joseph is not a Starbucks. Worry. Not a Starbucks drinking a skinny caramel macchiato or whatever that is with whipped cream on top. Joseph is in a pit. No internet surfing, no access to email, no Facebook friendships, no Netflix, no texting, no tweeting. Life is the pits for Joseph at this point. So much more to this episode in Joseph's life, but, but stay with me for the next few minutes as we bring this to conclusion tonight as I share something that God has laid, laid on my heart uh, concerning this message tonight. Listen, it was Reuben that suggested they throw Joseph in the pit, right? As you read the story, while he was there when Joseph was thrown into the pit, he was not there when Joseph came out of the pit, because you remember he came back and Joseph wasn't there. The point is, Reuben was surprised, even shocked, because he saw him go into the pit. He saw him struggling and begging to be delivered from the pit, probably. But now he's looking at the same pit, expecting to see a pitiful Joseph, full of fear and confusion and crying and begging to be delivered. But Joseph isn't there. I don't know who this refers to. Right. God has impressed on me to say to someone tonight uh, that's simply this. God is getting ready to do something for someone here tonight that's going to blow, blow you away. There are some people who maybe you've seen or maybe they've seen you in a pit 
There are some people that maybe have even helped put you in a pit and they've been watching your struggling and, and your scratching and clawing to try and get out of the pit, whatever the particular pit is. The last time they saw you, you were a mess. You were in a pit. As I said, I don't know what your particular pit is. They come in all different shapes and sizes. But I want you to look at your neighbor tonight as we draw to a close and with bold faith tonight declare to them, I have spent my last night in a pit. Say that to someone tonight. I've spent my last night in a pit. Don't die in a pit. Don't quit dreaming. Don't quit believing. Don't quit trusting. Don't quit expecting God uh, to do something to turn it around. I, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know who he's going to use to do it. All I know is that if you learn anything from, from the Bible, it's that God is the God of the turnaround. And Joseph and, and Job and Daniel, the three Hebrew children, Jonah, Jesus himself learned that lesson. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And at the lowest point in Joseph's life, physically and spiritually, God stepped in to turn it around. Now think about this. Reuben helped to get him into the pit. But it was Judah that we read. Judah, his brother Judah, who got him out. You know the name Judah what the name Judah means? Judah means praise. Praise. Judah was not full of praise for Joseph, although he seemed pretty pleased with the price that he got for Joseph. So I want to encourage someone here tonight, praise doesn't have to be pretty to be powerful. So start praising when, when you're, you know, whenever you feel that you're in a pit. Start to praise. Anybody can put on a pretty praise when the battle's over. Anybody can praise God when the sickness is healed. Anybody can praise God when the marriage is restored and the family is mended. Anyone can praise God when you've got a good retirement and you've got money in your wallet and money in the bank. But I'm telling you, it takes something to shout in the face of the devil. It takes something to praise in the face of the doctor's bad report. It takes something to shout when you don't have two pennies to rub together. It takes something when you're going through the, the fire to lift up your hands and to lift up your voice and even with faltering faith and doubts to declare, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It may not be pretty. In fact, it might be pretty ugly. But give God even your ugly praise. He wants it through your tears and through your groans. He, he wants it while your heart is breaking. He, he wants it... Uh, through every tear-stained eye. He wants it when it doesn't make any sense. We don't have the benefit of, of choosing the problems and the trials that come our way, divorce or sickness or loss of a loved one or all of the other things that we've mentioned, but we can choose how we react to it and on how we praise God in the midst of it. You see, the devil's purpose for the pit is to kill our praise because he knows that if you ever get your praise voice on, he's in trouble. Because if we can learn to get our praise voice on, we can get the devil off our back. Joseph was thrown into the pit. It was empty. He would have filled it with dirt. It would have been a grave. But I can't help but think that instead he filled it with praise. Joseph was not the only man of God, of course, who ever found himself in the pit. David said in Psalm 40, you know it well, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the, out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. 
He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And of course, Paul and Silas in prison, humiliated, beaten, black and blue, and in the midst of their pain, they give God praise. And God shook the prison off its foundations. Every cell was opened and every prisoner's chains were broken. Hallelujah. Joseph was raised in a home filled with angry, jealous, deceitful people. Jacob's mistakes with his children had a tragic long-term effect. And yet Joseph was perfectly faithful in an imperfect family. Parents, grandparents, the decisions and the actions that you choose each and every day will affect your children, your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren. We have to be faithful regardless of our family situation. It's very easy for us to look at our family background and to make excuses. You know, my parents were divorced. What do you expect? I can't help being this way. Uh, my father was an alcoholic, and that's why I'm the way I am. I was abused as a child. The list goes on. But God understands our particular circumstances, and he wants to help us to rise above the negative influences in our lives. As we close, Joseph's position. Aided by ten brothers who are grown men, wives and children of their own, and he's just a teenager. Two of them are violent murderers. Four of them have a reputation for evil. One is a sexual pervert, and they all hate Joseph. They never have a kind word for him. In fact, they have a hate ledger. They're keeping score. He ratted us out. He's dad's favourite. He gets better clothes, indicating a better future, and so on and so on. And you know, I know a lot of folk who keep a, a hate or even a bitterness ledger. They just find it hard to let go. And yet if you're a child of God, the God of love, in the love chapter we're told that love does not keep a record of wrongs. And are there, I don't know if there's anyone here tonight and you're harboring some, some bitterness. You're harboring something that's really... Uh, really doing you no good at all and maybe you've been harboring it for years you've got to let it go you've got to let it go you can get mad and get bitter at the things that have happened and even at God for all the wrong things that you think have happened same other people maybe for not protecting you maybe damaged your life or showing favoritism to other family members or whatever for just being passive parents, not engaged. Or you can trust that God has sovereignly put you in, in, in your family. Even though you don't understand everything, you can thank and praise him because that he'll work out all of the, the bad things for ultimate good. We as Christians are able to be like our Heavenly Father give. Four and thirty-one, thirty-two says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ be that tonight, as you've heard God's word tonight, maybe you've got to do something home in your own family God with, with whatever it is that's going on God will next for Joseph 